invite you to find your seats and uh, we will jump into God's word. What a great last song we just sang. A prayer that God would speak to us through his word to accomplish his purposes, uh, to fill the earth with his glory, uh, and to use us uh, in that. And um, what, a, what a, a prayer for every Christian. Um, well, happy Father's Day. And while today's message was not tailored towards fathers, it's just the next part of the uh, book of Galatians uh, that we are in. Um, as I was going through the message and uh, thinking about um, what will be kind of broken up into um, a godly motive, godly message, and a godly messenger, it was easy to apply those things at least to what I hope is uh, happening in my heart and life as a father. But uh, today, I don't want to make this a Father's Day message because the truth is, as we see Paul's example given to us in this section of the, the book of Galatians, it's my prayer that we do more than just uh, read the autobiographical historical narrative about Paul, but that this becomes something for all Christians to see how God interacts with uh, those lost people and changes them through the gospel message and gives them a purpose for their life afterwards. So, uh, happy Father's Day. This, day, this message hopefully can be a, a easily applied to fathers, but uh, more so I hope it's uh, apply, applicable to every Christian. <clears throat> this is our third week in the uh, Apostle Paul's letter to the churches in the region of Galatia. And as a quick review... Um, Paul had gone through, probably in his first missionary journey, over into Galatia, Asia Minor, today's uh, southern central Turkey, and he had planted, uh, the book of Acts tells us, at least four churches there. And as he had come back out of that, uh, out of that journey, the book of Acts says he comes back to his kind of home church area in Antioch. And while he's there, he gets word somehow that Judaizers had come in after him. And uh, the churches that he planted in uh, the, the region of Galatia were largely filled with Gentiles who had believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ as it had been presented to them, had surrendered their life to Christ, had by faith believed that, that God was saving them or had saved them through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But then Paul gets word that these Judaizers had come through. And these Judaizers, or in the book of Galatians, they're called troublers, simply came with another message that said, first Gentiles had to, um, in order to be, uh, access the, the salvation that they had through Jesus Christ, they had to take on the largely the ceremonial and dietary laws and customs of the Jews, um, that the biggest custom that's referred to in, in Galatians and through some of the other New Testament epistles is the one of circumcision, but there were more there. Uh, the Jewish faith believed that, um, that God through the Old Testament had revealed things about like when you could work and the day that you couldn't, what you could eat and what you couldn't, even different things like what you could wear and what kind of fabrics could be mis- mixed together. And the Judaizers were, in essence, telling the Gentile converts, in order to receive the salvation of Jesus Christ, you first have to become a Jew, 
and then you could become a Christian, which is why they're usually called Judaizers. And the way that they would say to do that first is circumcision, which is a ritual that identified the Jewish boys as a part of the Jewish community. So in essence, they were telling new believers, become Jewish through circumcision and then keeping Jewish customs, then you can receive the Jewish Messiah as your savior. Or in other words, the very gospel of God was at at stake because God's gospel was never intended just for ethnic Israel, but it was always intended for every nation, tribe, and tongue. It was given to Adam and Eve that they would fill the world uh, and be fruitful and multiply, fill the world with the glory of God. And then as the Bible narrative moves forward, we see that... uh, After the flood, Noah is given the same commands to go out and be fruitful, multiply, fill the world with God's glory. After the Tower of Babel and the the story constricts down to one man named Abram who's called and changed to Abraham, but God gives him the command that through him all the nations would be blessed. And then out of Abraham and his lineage, we uh, are introduced in the Old Testament to eventually the nation of Israel. But even they are called to be lights to the rest of the Gentile nations so that the nations around them can see who God is through them and come to worship him. See, the gospel was always intended for whomsoever will or who God had called. And so it was a, it was a It was at stake. It was being threatened in that it was being offered only to a particular kind of person who acted a particular kind of way, who had a particular kind of norm. And so Paul, in in reaction to that, writes this letter back to the region of Galatia that was supposed to be circulated among those churches. We've kind of been framing the letter in what the reformers had in their five solas. But today I'd like to also say that you could, you could have an outline of the letter that would just be that the first two chapters are kind of like Paul giving his personal testimony. And then chapters 3 and 4 is like Paul giving doctrinal teaching. And then chapters 5 and 6 is the application. I'm not saying that any of us would do this, but there are um, it is easy sometimes to skip through things like chapter one and two and the autobiographical historical story of Paul's conversion and maybe we would be tempted to go like just get me to the juicy parts of the letter the doctrine and then the application because that's kind of what affects my life and maybe the historical information about Paul isn't as meaningful to me so what I'd like to pray this morning is that God opens our heart and understanding that we see even in this historical section, God's Spirit can take God's Word and apply it to our lives and teach us. I hope that we see that not only is God's message supernatural, but that God's salvation is as well. And that when God supernaturally reveals Jesus Christ in someone's heart, it transforms them. In Paul's case, from a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the gospel. This is Paul's testimony, but what I hope that we see is the story of Paul's transformation is not just for super-Christians, but it's the story of every Christian. It's an example of what God wants to do in each one of us. 
The gospel is supposed to change us so that our testimony can be a powerful tool and that when others see the way we live our lives, it should give them reason to give God's glory, give God glory. We're going to see that in Paul's life. My prayer is that we, that God's spirit takes it and applies it and challenges us, that that's also supposed to be true in our life. So this section is going, I'm going to go back and I'm going to start in verse 10. And I'm going to read from verse 10 through the end of chapter 1. And then we're going to take a moment of silence and pray that God would speak to us out of his word. So starting in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up into Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown in, in, in person to the churches of Judea that were in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's take a few moments and pray. Father, we now ask that you would take your word and you would apply it to our heart. That through your spirit today, we would be encouraged or challenged, edified or rebuked. But in this passage, Lord, that we would have our own motives put in front of us have what we believe about the Bible, your word, set in front of us, and have our own conversion set in front of us, that we could see in how you worked in the Apostle Paul, but know that you are not a respecter of persons and that you don't change, and so that 
while the scope of the apostle's ministry may be particular to him, that change, the salvation that you gave him, and the purpose that you gave his saved life is common to every Christian, including us. Lord, help us be confronted by your word today as we take what you did in the apostles' life and ask ourselves what you intend to do in ours. Would this not be a historical narrative only? But Lord, would this be the living word of God that by your spirit you would bring life into ours? Ultimately, Lord, for Jesus and his glory, that others could see our lives and worship the God who has changed us. And that in our lives, Lord, you would call others who would also come out of darkness and into light. And that again, through their lives, that story could be told over and reach another ultimately all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do today is just take this passage, talk about the Apostle Paul in kind of a uh, historical, grammatical, uh, grammatical context, what it meant uh, as the Galatians were reading it, the Apostle Paul's intent for it, But then I'd also like to take it and apply it to our lives at the end. And hopefully God speaks to us from it. So first, what Paul is saying as we back up to chapter 1, verse 10, is he's he's telling the Galatians that his motive for speaking the gospel was not to win friends and influence people. It was because he had been called by God to be a servant of God to speak only God's word to them. And in that, verse 10, he recognizes that that's probably not going to be the most popular thing that he could do. He then goes on in verse 11 and 12, and he begins to talk about the gospel message he's been given. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached, that was preached by me, is not man's gospel. I wonder what man's gospel would look like. As I thought through that this week, I thought, man's gospel, if it was up to me to invent some kind of gospel for humanity, would probably have a human at the center. Man's gospel would probably have Superman or any Marvel superhero that you could want to fill in there, who would stand against the cosmic forces trying to destroy humanity, and as human representative, as the ubermensch, as the superman, he would be able to stand against the cosmic forces, or even fight against the gods themselves, and overcome for humanity, so that we could triumph and be saved and move forward. That'd be a popular gospel. I bet if you made a movie out of it, you could make a lot of money. 
Or maybe the gospel, if it was a man-centered gospel, would just replace God at the center and put man at the center and let man out of the center of his own life take journey through life and discover God along the way. And that's what existentialism is. It was born out of Europe after World War II and disillusionment by people who, who didn't understand how a, a good God could let that kind of violence and destruction happen over the continent. And so instead of the great I am at the center of all truth, they replaced him with the I think therefore I am at the center and said that no longer were we trusting on God revealing who, him, who he was to us and taking him at his word. Instead, we said the idea would be that man was allowed to walk through life and have his journey and discover God along the way, interpreting God to be however he wanted him to be, or in essence, making God after man's image instead of the other way around. That would be a convenient man's gospel. However man's gospel would look, I I at least think what Paul is saying is a man-centered gospel would at least give humans some sort of contribution to their own salvation so that they could in their own minds and their own pride say, look what I did. And Paul says right from the get-go, the gospel that I've been preaching isn't a man-centered gospel. It's a God-centered gospel. Because he goes on to say, I got it, not from man, but directly from God. I didn't go, uh, in verse um, 12, I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it. If you go back into Acts chapter 9 and you reveal the Apostle Paul's conversion story from the road in Damascus when he's blinded by the confrontation with Jesus Christ to his healing with Ananias, he didn't run right off to Bible college to learn what he should say after that from some man. I'm not knocking Bible college at all, seminary. Uh, I like what well, let me just say of my own seminary experience, I didn't know how much I didn't know until someone taught me. And then I was like, wow, I, I encourage everyone to continue their own Bible education and chase God through truths of those who have studied his word for a long time. But Paul didn't run right off to Bible college, nor did he run right off to Jerusalem to be validated by other apostles before him who would say, wow, that's awesome. I like your story. And and listen, you need to go out and teach and, and let's tell you what we know. Instead, Paul says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The message that Paul got, he's going to give us as we go into his autobiographical information here in a moment. He got directly from the Lord by spending three years with him. And this is important for Paul as he's um, sending this message out to Galatians because the Judaizers that were there were most likely saying that they represented people like Peter and James in the church at Jerusalem. And they would validate their message by saying things like that James and Peter and John had spent three years with Christ in his earthly ministry walking through Judea. And now Paul is in essence saying, 
I spent three years with him too in Arabia as he gave me the gospel every bit as uh, much of revelation as he did to the 11, 12 who followed him in his earthly ministry. What is Paul saying? He's saying that the motive that I have in preaching the gospel is a God-centered motive and the message that I have in the gospel is a God-revealed message. And then he switches to his own story So in 13 through 24, well, he says, For have you heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it? And I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among the people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's about to, in 13 through 24, take his life and he's going to break it up into three parts his before Christ part, his conversion story, and his after conversion part. And isn't that the important things about each of our lives? Each of us has a before a BC, a conversion, and then an after Christ. What I want you to notice as we now investigate the before Christ part is that Paul gives a lot of details but he doesn't glorify any of them. He doesn't go back and revel in who he was before Christ. He doesn't tell the stories of before Christ and the sins that I was in and and, and relive them almost in a joyous way. And I encourage us that as we think of before Christ in our lives, whether we're telling that story to others or just thinking about it ourselves, that we never let ourselves go back into who we were before Christ and somehow revel in our sinfulness in our rebellion in our sin but simply state this is who I was so that people can see the difference between who I was and who I am and ask how I got there which leads us back to the cross Paul says of himself who I was before Christ I was violently persecuting the church and trying to destroy it sitting around my kitchen table this week talking to my family about this and we were confronted by what that really means when we went back and read some of the passages out of Acts and so that's where I want to take us right now so that we can really see who this guy Paul was and what he meant by violently persecuting the church I'd like to ask us to go back to Acts chapter 7 verse 58 which is the first mention of Paul, although back where we're headed, his name is going to be Saul still. And the first time that we see Saul is when a a young man named Stephen is standing up and preaching the gospel. And when he preaches, the Jews finally get to the place that they have had enough. I mean, they're gnashing their teeth. They can't wait to get rid of him. And they take this young man outside the city gates, and they put him down in a little pit. We talked about, uh, Brian Hutchison taught us upstairs in youth today, and what he, the focus of his message is that we would never read God's word and think of it 
um, as just a story, but that we would bring it back to the reality that these are human people doing these things. And I want to ask us to do the same thing as we consider what's happening now. Consider a group of men taking a young man outside the city gates and throwing him in a pit, intending to pick up large rocks and bash his head in until he's dead. And in order to do that, they're taking off their cloaks. Because, you know, when you're going to kill somebody with a rock, you want to make sure you get all the force in it that you can. And here's a young man who says, don't worry about watching your clothes while you bash that guy's head in. I'll watch them for you. And this is our first introduction to the Apostle Paul, known as Saul, when it says in verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We pick up Saul's continuing story in the next chapter. In chapter 8, verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. And around our kitchen table, I said, kids, uh, that would be like if we're here right now talking about Jesus with our Bibles open, but someone's coming through Fairfield and down our street and through our neighborhood, knocking on doors and saying, are you Christian? Do you have a Bible? And if the answer is yes, they're stealing away fathers and mothers from their children, intending to throw them into prison. And what we're going to see in a minute is intending to kill them. Why? Because they're Christians. And I told them, hear the torment, the sadness, and the destruction in people's lives as someone comes to your door and knocks with the authorities behind them and forcibly drags you out of your house, tearing apart your family and leaving your children, all because you hold to a certain set of beliefs. This is who Paul is. He was the guy knocking at the door, interrogating the people. He goes on in chapter 9, as chapter 8 is going to finish off uh, with a a story about Philip, but chapter 9 is going to continue with Saul. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue of Damascus, so that he could, if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This guy, Saul, it wasn't enough for him just to clean up in Jerusalem and imprison Christians and murder them. He wanted to broaden his circle. And so he got authority to go to Damascus to do the same thing. Go to the very last chapter of the book of Acts. Where Paul is going to give in his own words, as he's before Agrippa, a description of who he was before Jesus. Starting in verse 4 and going through 11, Paul says of himself, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews, 
They have all for a long time known, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And then he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving the authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even into foreign cities. Galatians, Paul says, I was violently persecuting the church and trying to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. Uh, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul, in quick words, is giving who he was before Christ. He was a violent, hateful, zealous, successful had lots of friends and possibility of lots of money and a comfortable way of life, confronting and destroying and persecuting God's people. Then, on his way to do so in Damascus, he continues, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him to the Gentiles. So as, as he's leaving Jerusalem to go to Damascus, we know the story in Acts 9 that a light shines and blinds him and whether he falls off his horse or just falls to the ground, he gets up and he, he hears a voice and the voice, he says, who is this? Who, and, and it's Jesus and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As you persecute the church, Saul, you're persecuting me, the Lord of the church. And if you know the story, Saul gets up, he's he's led by hands into a new city, and there God appears to a prophet Ananias and says, go and heal Saul because I've chosen him to do my work. But the way Paul says uh, says it here is just this, I was on the road and the moment ticked, the moment that God knew before eternity, my moment. Had Saul heard the gospel? Probably. Did he know who Jesus was in Jerusalem? Probably. Did he hear the gospel when Stephen was was giving his defense? Yes. Did it change Paul? No. He just wanted to stone Stephen to shut his mouth up. Had he heard the gospel from those that he drug out of their homes intending to imprison and kill them? Probably more times Uh, just over and over hearing people give a defense for why they had given their life to Jesus Christ. Did it ever change him? No, every time he heard the gospel, it seems like it just made him a little more violent and a little more zealous to persecute them. What was different this time? Because this was his time. Because God had elected and called him, and on this day, on this journey, it pleased God to meet Saul. Oh, man. 
can we just skip forward to the application of this so that we could talk about the awesome part of what God has done in our life? No, we can't because we have to get through this. And so Saul says, and I was changed. I was right then and there. Look, if you look in the verses that we just said, is there any indication at all that Saul was seeking to be changed? Was he trying to find a Christian who would give him the gospel? Was there any indication in his life that he wanted anything different than just to do what he was doing? No, he wasn't seeking the Lord, but the Lord sought him. And on this day, he was changed. And the change was so dramatic and happened to him that it says, from that moment, right? He, he changed me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He changed me for a purpose. In the change, God told me what my life was really given to me for. And it wasn't to persecute the church. It was to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. He said, but I didn't, now here's his life after. I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles. I didn't go to study. I, I didn't go to get validated. But I went into Arabia. Arabia is not Saudi Arabia. Arabia back then would have been what we call Jordan today. And I returned again to Damascus. And if we go back into the book of Acts, we can follow some of that. As What happens is he goes for about three years... He's taught of the Lord in Arabia, and then he goes back to Damascus, and he's already preaching the gospel. After those three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Cephas is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. I didn't see any of the other uh, apostles except James, the Lord's brother. What is is Paul doing? He's still telling the Galatians who are reading this letter, This is not a gospel that was taught to me. It's a gospel that God revealed in me. You can't doubt the message of of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, without doubting the God who spoke it to me. He's making a defense of his motive, of the message, and now of the messenger. Fifteen days I was there. this is a pretty serious thing to him because he says, I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. Whether you're a devout Jew or a devout Christian, that statement carries a lot of weight. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. That would be Tarsus. That would be where his hometown is. Uh, And so I think what Paul is saying is I went back home for a while. I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea and in Christ, uh, that are in Christ. Why is that important? Because the churches of Judea that are in Christ are where the apostles are. That's Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. What Paul is saying over and over and over again is, I didn't learn this from anybody. They didn't even know who I was. I didn't spend enough time within the apostles for them to tell me what I was supposed to believe and what I was supposed to think. Everything I got, I got by revelation from Jesus Christ, and I'm giving to you. And then he finishes off just in 23 and 24 by saying, and here's the result of my changed life. The word was getting out that I had been, that I'm preaching this gospel, and they were only, they were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And the result of that is, 
They glorified God because of me. How awesome. Application. A few things that I hope we can get and apply to our lives. Paul makes a defense of how he got the word of God directly from Jesus. And I think that we can apply that to what we hold in our hands via turning on something and reading it or God's intended way. Um, I can't read on the phone. Every time I try to read on the, Bible, uh, the, phone on the uh, Bible on the phone, maybe I'm the only one that has this problem. But as soon as I turn on with the best intentions of like, I'm just going to read my Bible, is the time three people text me. Or I get a buzz because my favorite team did something incredible. Or something else. But that device is, is hooked into much more than just my Bible. And so I, I struggle uh, with, to read there. So I just do the old-fashioned way. This is, a, this is the word of God that is supernaturally given to us. Just as Paul said that he didn't get his message through men or by men, I want to encourage us the way that the reformers said sola scriptura was to say that this that we call the scriptures is really the breathed word of God that was recorded by men for us to read. Or the way that 2 Timothy 3.16 says, we're just going to jump around and read a few things here. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work, for every good work. This is the breathed out word of God. As if God's speaking it, because when you speak it, you breathe. It's supernatural. Second Peter records it and says that it was given as God's spirit blew along the author's heart's like a breath would blow into a ship's sail and move it along the ocean. So God blew in men's hearts and they recorded this. It's supernaturally given to the writers, but it's also supernaturally given to the hearers or the readers, to us. You, you can study this book and there are people who have, in, in historical ways, in grammatical ways, in literary ways, to break it down and teach it, and they've never had the truth of it revealed to them. Because it's supernaturally given to the writers, and it has to be supernaturally spoken to the hearers so that they can hear Christ revealed to them in it. I like the way that Paul says that Christ was revealed in his conversion uh, story in 15. But when he had set me apart before I was born, called me by his grace that I might preach to the Gentiles. Um, oh, I had to take my glasses off. So this is what happens when you study a lot. Uh, you're like, did I read that in three or two? Don't know. But he says that Christ was revealed in him. Some of our uh, translations say that revealed to him. But it, Christ has to 
God has to take this word and he has to reveal it in us or, or it's of no good. The same way, or let me just, uh, instead of me saying it, let me let the Bible say it in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13 talks about hearing truth. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. How undervalued the word of God is. Because I think so many times we hold it like a textbook. Thinking that if we study the information and memorize it, that that somehow is going to have all of the change that we need. These are the words of the living God. And what we need in our lives is to interact with the living God. We need to have the living God find us on our moments in our life and speak his word into our heart so that they're not words that just affect our brains so they don't just convict us up here of the things we're doing. But like the old prophet said in the Old Testament, that his word was found by me and when I ate it, it became life to me. When you open up the Bible, pray that God speaks it to you in a way that surpasses head and hits heart and life, that it begins to grow in you. Because we have to get this supernaturally. It's good to study the word of God, like uh, Timothy said, so that the, the man of God can be ready for every good work. We should know the word of God. I encourage you, memorize it in large chunks. But because while memorizing it, you're going to repeat it over and over. And I really pray that you find the author speaking to you while you memorize it. Or it just becomes information to us. The message of God is supernaturally given to the authors. It's supernaturally revealed to the hearers. That's why we preach expositionally here at Trinity Bible Church. Is because we believe that every word in here is profitable to us. And rather than jumping around and picking up kind of the different things we want to say, we believe that by going verse by verse through here, we're going to encounter God who's revealing himself to us. Existential thought says that I'm at the center of my universe and I'm going to use this to bolster what I believe. But Christian thought says God's at the center of everything and in this he's revealing himself to me so that I don't discover him on my walk through life but that he impacts me on my day that he's pre-chosen. And that's what the next part says that when, when Paul is saying how did this happen to me he says that there was a moment that God had known for him that he has set me apart before I was born. The next book over in Ephesians 1 through 3 says it this way. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, I'm sorry. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he has 
chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God chooses to show his love on us by finding us when we, like Paul, are invested in our pre-Christ lives, seeking success, seeking fame and fortune and friends and money and entertainment and pleasure and all of the things that Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 2, we were just going about with the world's wisdom, wanting nothing more than in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And Paul says, in that state, we were just enemies of God and enemies of the cross. How can somebody who's only invested in our lives, listen, just play it back in your mind and remember who you were before Christ and remember what your goals and your desires were and ask yourself, were they just selfish? Were they just for me? And if you're honest, the answer is yes. No one's seeking Christ, Romans 3 says. But all of us, like sheep, are just going our own way, seeking our own things. (laughs) And then look at what Paul says. But he called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. Listen, I love this. We can, we can, we could come up with different versions of how we think God thinks about us. And I would say this, that if, depending on who your earthly father was, you may get a color of who your heavenly father is in his character. And if you have an earthly father who's very austere and very demanding, maybe you think that that's the same way that your heavenly father is. Or if you have an earthly father who's very lax and very loving and very giving, maybe that's what you put on your idea of who our Heavenly Father is. But our Heavenly Father has revealed who He is in His Word. And what His Word says right here is that God is pleased to save us. Isn't that awesome? If you remember who you were before Christ... And you think of, you may not be, have been a violent person seeking to destroy the church and, and persecuting the church, but at very least you were a selfish person wanting nothing more than to build up self through the entertainment and enjoyment and the thrills of life to satisfy self in the mind and the body. And on the day that God found you, it was pleasing to him to call your name and call you out of death because to live the selfish life is death. And he spoke your name in a way that his word was life. And in your dead path of just another day of doing your thing, Something different happened and it wasn't just hearing the gospel because I bet you'd heard it before, but something happened. 
and what was dead in you sprung to life because it pleased God to reveal his son in you. That's why Paul would later say, if we boast about anything, let it be boasting about the cross of Christ. We each should be braggadocious in our life about the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at what God has done for each of us here who if God had not chosen a day to to reveal His Son in us, each of us would be with blinders on seeking our own life and the end of that life is hell and damnation and separation from God and God is everything good and so it would be that at the end of our life all that we deserved was separation from everything good for eternity. And of no good reason and no good that we had done except that he had a day appointed and it pleased him to call your name on your day of rebirth. And now, still not because of any good thing that we have done, God's Spirit is walking us and he that begun that good work in us will see it through until the day of completion. And it's not because of our faith and it's not because of our goodness as if we had to have enough faith or good enough faith that we could put our trust in our faith. But my trust is in the God who saved me when I had no faith. And he gave me the faith to believe that by grace God was doing something on the cross that was sufficient to save a wretched sinner like me and keep me even though in my habitual sin I like to go back to sinning. God loves me more than my sin. My faith is in a God who will not let me perish because he elected to save me and take me to heaven. And along the way he will not let me stay in my sins because he loves me enough to change me. Amen? Where's your faith today? Now listen, if God saves us like that, he doesn't save us just to take us to heaven. If our testimony has three parts, and the first part is who I was before Christ, and the second part is my conversion story, I think that most of us in here are pretty decent at those two parts. But the third part is, How has my life been changed after that so that like the Apostle Paul said here, others were hearing about his post-Christ life and it caused them to give God glory. Can I just end with a challenge from the Word of God? That if we get excited about thinking about who I was before Christ and we get excited about how God, not because of any good work lest I should boast, met me on my dead path to hell, and saved me by revealing Jesus Christ in me, then let us get equally excited about the purpose that he gave me salvation for. Terrible English, you get the point. I think I just left my preposition dangling. In front of everybody. So God did not save us to take us to heaven immediately, or he would have. God saved us so that we could be living testimonies of his grace to those he still intends to call. So that through our changed lives, somebody could say, I knew you years ago. What happened to you now? (laughs) And those that, that I know in this congregation, that we've had those conversations, how awesome is it when somebody says that to you 
And it's living proof that what God is doing in you can be seen by others and you get the opportunity to just say, listen, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was a God who loved me and saw me while I was yet dead in my trespasses and sins. And it pleased him in that moment to say, my child, come to life. And these dead bones took on flesh. And this dead spirit came alive, and so did yours. And now he takes us by the hand and walks us down a new path that eventually ends up in his presence for eternity. That's not a man-centered gospel. That's a God story of love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, so that whosoever believeth on him by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, would have life everlasting. Lastly, I want to just say this, and we'll close. As a matter of fact, music team, if you want to head this way. It ends with this, and they glorified God because of me. You know what the church should be? A place that when we hear the goodness of God, we glorify God because of what he's doing in each other. That we never have a hint of jealousy, that we never have a hint of of anything except, even as I get this wonderful position of looking out into each of your faces, (laughs) that my heart wants to jump up and down. Because I know I see God's story being lived out in you. (laughs) And all I want to do is glorify God because look at what he does in people's lives. The church should be a place where we are unashamed to glorify God because what he's doing. And so we get a chance to right now. While I pray and they come up, let's glorify God. Heavenly Father, because of who you are, because of what you've done in our lives and in the lives that we see around here gathered together on the Lord's day to celebrate you, Lord, we just want to give you glory. Father, we're so thankful that you called the Apostle Paul, that you changed him from his wicked ways, and you changed him from a persecutor of the church to the preacher of the gospel, and that you gave him the privilege of writing words that would reveal you to us. He paid the cost when his head got chopped off for it. And he counted that joy because he got to suffer like his Savior Christ. But Lord, we know that you're no respecter of persons and the things that you did in the apostle's life, the way you called him out of his darkness, the way you changed him by your grace, the way you gave him a life to shine your light into the darkness of others is the same program that you have for every Christian. We're to be a holy priesthood, taking your things and revealing them to the world. Challenge us, Lord. Challenge us that we don't revel in our pre-Christ sins. Challenge us as we think about the conversion story that we've had. And challenge us, Lord, to think about the lives that we live since. Lord, glorify yourself in your church. 
corporately and each of us individually. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.